You are on trend with the Alumni Trending Podcast. What's up, trendsetters? Welcome to the Alumni Trending Podcast. I am your host, Paul Clifford, and I'm so excited about today's guest. Joining me today is Chris Marshall. Chris is an icon within our profession, having built his career both at Lehigh and Cornell before moving to the vendor side of the business. Chris is the founder and CEO of Marshall Advancement Consulting, affectionately known in the industry as CMAC. CMAC is a full-service advancement consulting firm focused on the education sector. CMAC brings extensive experience from working with over 150 clients in higher education, independent schools, and nonprofit organizations. Chris is a senior higher education advancement professional with 19 years of alumni relations and fundraising experience. Spent 12 of those years leading the programs at two top-ranked national universities, seven at Lehigh, and then five at Cornell. I'm excited to bring Chris Marshall onto the Alumni Trending Podcast. Chris, how's it going? Going great, Paul. Thanks for having me, and I'm thrilled to be here. And kudos for you for putting this uh, whole series together. I'm I'm thrilled to be part of it and love what you're doing. It has been a creative outlet for me during this time as we have kind of sheltered in place and tried to wait out the the pandemic that's going on around the world. Maybe we could start right there and talk about how you're dealing with COVID-19 and how it's plaguing our country right now. Yeah, it's been really interesting. I, I spent over two and a half years in a consulting role where I... um traveled three, four days uh, out of a week where I was in a hotel room on, on multiple planes. And, uh, and, and since March of this year, like, like everyone in the industry, we've all pivoted and shifted to our engagement strategies to be digital. I've done the same with my business. I mean, literally, I have not been outside my home or outside my, the, the, the town I live in uh, to do any consulting work with a client on site. It's been 100% virtual on Zoom and BlueJeans and WebEx and, you know, different different uh, vendors that provide the technology that we all use these days. Um, but it's it, what I think it, you know, it, it parallels greatly is what we're seeing in the industry that the work I do now in these last three, four months is going to be the, more of the norm. I'm not going to go back to three, four days on the road of traveling in person to, to clients any longer, just like we're not going to be uh, doing in-person only events. They're going to be a combo, right? We'll be in person some places, we'll be virtual some places. And I think we're going to do, see a hybrid. We're going to see a lot of um, engagement activity and the work I'm doing where I'm going to be both in person and virtual. So um, that's been my biggest uh, change. And it took about a week for me to pivot, but um, it's been a refreshing change to be able to be home, be with family more and, um, and still maintain the work. Uh, it's still you know, I, 90% of what I do as a consultant, you can do virtually uh, through Zoom. The ones, the places where it's it's a little more challenging is in a retreat environment where you want to be in the same room with people. You can do some of that virtually, but it's um, uh, it's just better when you're all together and you can read body language in, in the same space. But that, you know, in, in terms of a consulting practice, shifting it 100% to virtual ha- has been a pretty heavy lift. But um, but one like again, like I said, we've all learned lessons from. We're not going to go back to anything exactly like it when we go back to whatever normal looks like in the future. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think we are learning an awful lot and I think we'll continue to learn. Uh, I think we'll continue to learn 
how to best leverage the virtual pieces so that our face-to-face -face pieces can be more meaningful and we can take better yeah. advantage of when we are together face-to-face. -to -face. Uh, I know a lot of our committee meetings, for example, with our with our governing board will take place in, in virtual formats now so that we can maximize the mind power of people when we have them in the room together and, and fully take advantage of those opportunities. So yeah, I think we've learned a lot and we'll continue to learn. You know, there's a lot I want to get to uh, in this conversation today. I want to talk strategic planning. I want to talk a little volunteer management. Uh, I really want to dig in on engagement metrics because uh, that's really a kind of a position of the market that you have when you're on the practitioner side and now even on the consulting side that you have put a lot of great thought and work around. But before we get to those topics, on a previous podcast I had with Mike Worley, he described alumni relations, at least the old school model of the alumni office, as being a graveyard for former coaches. <laughs> Which I quickly pointed out to him that he was a former coach, uh, swimming and diving coach at Ohio University. But you, I know you also came from the coaching world. So maybe talk about how your foray into higher education, first as a coach, and then how you made that shift over to alumni relations at Lehigh. Yeah, I, I do think the old model was a place to put, you know, retired coaches um, and, you know, maintain that cheerleading aspect of alumni relations. You know, my, my path is similar. I was a, I actually was a swimming coach at Lehigh University for 12 years and moved into the alumni role there. But it was not because I was being parked and, you know, put out the pasture. It was because um, I had built an alumni program for the um, for the athletics program. And I hadn't, you didn't even know I was doing, I didn't know what alumni relations was formally. I didn't know it was an industry, but I just naturally knew that if you connect alumni to what you're doing and involve them with your current student athletes, in my case, um, good things will happen. And so, um, you know, the university had done a search for an alumni leader and they, and they finally uh, settled on me. Uh, and I was the guy who knew the institution, who, who knew the place, who knew the culture, and the president who hired me uh, said, we're going to teach you the business. And he sent me out to every case conference and visited every professional I could out in the business and learned the industry, um, found, uh, found myself uh, associating up with the Pequod group, which is the private college university alumni directors, and learned a ton from that, that community of practice and um, brought all those good thinking back into the Lehigh world and merged it with my knowledge of the institution and, and built the program there that got noticed eventually. And then uh, a few years later, Cornell was looking for somebody who, frankly, didn't know the institution, but knew the industry and can bring in modern and best practices. And, and they hired me in that role without knowing the place that well, but knowing the industry. And um, so we, I brought all those sort of tools to, the, to Ithaca, New York, and, and built the program there on top of a very solid, strong base that was already in place, but needed to be modernized, frankly. And um, spent five years there doing that and went off into consulting from there. So it's a it's been an interesting journey. You know, I call it the crooked mile. You never know what you don't go to school thinking you're going to do these things. But it's a it's a path that I took that um, you know, learned as you as you go, work hard, do good things and good things will happen. Doors will open. And that's kind of how I uh, found myself at Cornell and then uh, moving right into a consulting role right after that, working with over the last you now seven years total um, uh, with 100, 150 plus institutions and seeing what's going on in the industry and best practices and where we are now. It's a much different uh, industry than it was 20 years ago when I started. And it's, um, it's been a fun journey. 
You know, it's it's interesting your career path and that you started at your alma mater and then and then went off from there. It would strike me that that might be a more difficult decision than it happening the opposite way, right? It might be a more difficult decision to decide to leave your alma mater than to return to it. Was that was that something you wrestled with? You know, yeah, it was a major struggle. I'd been there at that point for 24 years, five as a student, 12 as a coach, seven as the alumni leader. And it was my home, you know, it was my place. My roots were deep there. And I thought I'd stay for a long time. And the Cornell opportunity was just one of those two good um, uh, situations to pass up. I, I couldn't let that uh, pass by me. So I ended up making that leap. And it was probably the best professional decision I ever made. Well, not probably. It absolutely was the best professional decision I ever made in my life because I I felt like I got an MBA in higher education. You go from a a medium-sized private institution to a large, complex, decentralized, you know, multi-campus and all the things that Cornell brings. It's a major institution in terms of the size of, you know, number of colleges and schools and alumni and students. And you keep going. It's it's triple or quadruple what I was dealing with before. And and the complexity was probably 10 times the level. So uh, it was really a good step for me to make. Um, So it wasn't no regrets in doing it, but it was definitely absolutely very difficult decision to make, but I still think the right one. I just want to point out for my listeners that I intentionally used the word wrestle uh, in talking about your transition from one wrestling powerhouse at Lehigh to another <laughs> up at Cornell. And Penn State's wrestling program's not too bad either, Paul. I know that. <laughs> we are not, we are not too bad at all. No, it, they, they've been a lot of fun to, to watch and follow and cheer on. For sure. For sure. So let's start with strategic planning, as we should really with anything we do. Strategic planning is is critical to setting the direction of our programs and, and really helping us to identify what we want to accomplish over the next period that's ahead of us. You put it in a way that I think really helps bring some clarity to the way that you're thinking, that you think about strategic planning. You use the analogy that if in real estate, it's all about location, location, location. In alumni relations, it's focus, focus, focus. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that approach that you take to strategic planning to get your clients to really focus on what's important. Yeah, uh, you said it. You, you you quoted something I said a long time ago, and it stuck with me. It's it stayed, stayed associated with me a long way. That focus, focus, focus. I, I think the, the biggest epidemic in the alumni relations industry is our lack of focus because what you find in most shops is a very tactical um, uh, work plan mentality where we kind of do what we've done the year before and we crank through it again. And so, so, so planning is really an annual exercise. It's not a long-term, what do we want to be three to five years exercise. And when you have that and you factor in also on top of that, you have a lot of input from presidents and board members and other staff and, uh, and the like who are giving you ideas of things to add into your overall program. And what happens, right? You, you end up with, this um, myriad of uh, activities and initiatives and, and newsletters and events and, and volunteer structures that you're trying to manage all of them with the same size staff you had three years before. And all of a sudden you're adding all these other things and you're not doing any of them really well. And it's not uncommon to find a lot of alumni programs in that shape where they just don't know where they're going to spend their time. And so I come in and say, look, we have to focus. The strategic planning exercise is equally important to determine what you're going to do, what you're going to focus on in the larger scheme of things over the next three to five years, but what you're not going to do, it becomes, in some cases, even more important because they have so many things they are currently doing that getting rid of things, stopping things, sunsetting things, or pausing a few things 
is, is part of the art of a strategic planning exercise. So we start at the very top with any client. We talk, start with vision. Um, vision is the desired future state for the organization. What do you want to be in the long run, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? What is your vision for your organization? And mission is what you do every day to get towards that. That's the second thing we look at. Um, vision, mission, then priorities. Values are in there too. We also look at institutional values and how they layer into the alumni program. Priorities are next. And what are the focus areas you're going to have over the next three to five years? And, and then you build all the strategies, goals, and tactics underneath that. There's a, there's, a, there's a pyramid structure I use that has the values at the top and vision, mission, priorities, strategy, goals, tactics, and an annual work plans, I think, at the bottom. And again, our industry has been good at the bottom of that pyramid, but at the top, we haven't been as good in setting that broader kind of long-term direction that we want to be headed towards. So we, we actually work from the top down on that pyramid with the, uh, um, you know, when we do any strategic planning process, we involve a, a, a task force or a group of stakeholders from not just in the uh, alumni program, but people that work across the, uh, on the development side, the people that work on campus and career services, for example, student affairs. We bring in members of the board and so forth. So we have a, a pretty broad representative group who sort of helps us shape at the very top of that value, vision, mission, priority area. And then we dig into the strategies, tactics, and goals. And at the end of all that, you find that you have a whole bunch of things you want to do that are most important. And when you compare it to the things that you're currently doing, there's going to be things that are on your list of current activities that didn't make it to the strategic plan. And then what do you do? So it's a matter of peeling those things away and, and providing that, again, long-term, short-term and long-term focus on what are the most important things to focus on going forward. So it, it, it's something I think our industry needs to do more of. I'm seeing it, I, I would describe it as a trend. We're seeing more and more institutions, yours included, that are thinking about long-term strategy for an alumni program. Um, but it's still a place I think we need to improve on as an industry overall. Exactly. In full transparency, this is a process that you and I actually went through together uh, yeah. when you did some great work at the Penn State Alumni Association. And I remember you forcing us to ask the question, what business are we in? And then that forced us to take a look at everything that we were doing. And if it didn't align to the answer to that question, right? Are we in yep. the t-shirt? Are we in the t-shirt selling business? No, we're not in the t-shirt selling business. So then why are you selling t-shirts, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it really provided ultimate clarity for us on what we should be focused on and, and, and what we shouldn't be focused on. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, many large um, alumni programs like yours and others, um, but even even trickles down to the smaller ones, they get into part of the business they get into is the self-sustaining their um, their revenue stream, right? Where they need t-shirt sales and credit card sales and memberships and insurance policies and the like. I'll keep going right down that list. And you end up being, uh, you know, you're more worried about revenue generation than you are about engaging your alumni. And at the end of the day, you exist to engage your alumni to support the institution, the university's mission. Um, to me, it's pretty clear, but it, it gets watered down as you go forward over time and you get all the other, other pieces come into the equation for how you manage and run an alumni shop. Um, to, to me, um, there's, we got to peel away some of that um, stuff that uh, distracts us from the main mission of an organization. I think that's exactly right. Uh, at the end of the day, and this is really a good transition and a good segue to my next question we are driving towards really achievable engagement metrics, right? At, we're not going to measure how many t-shirts we sold, right? We might measure the revenue on that and what that revenue enables us to do. But what we really should be measuring is that last part that I just mentioned, the what that enables us to do. 
And right. so in your mind, what are some of the uh, end results and outcomes that 21st century alumni programs are driving towards? So I, I'm a big advocate of crawl, walk, run, then fly, the evolutionary stage of this whole thing. Right. I, I think another thing our industry has done, frankly, is that we've tried to create the perfect model for measuring alumni engagement. And there's no one perfect model, frankly, but most places struggle with just the basic, how do I get out of the gate on this thing? So I think the case um, engagement metrics uh, task force, full, full disclosure, I was part of the first group that got this organized. It came up with the four basic principles of experiential events and webinars and Zooms and all that. Uh, uh, who's attending things for you as an alum? Um, who's volunteering? Um, philanthropic support and then communications. Those four categories, to me, the ability to track and code that information in a centralized database across the institution at Penn State with 23 campuses, right? And, and all the exactly. other things, that, all that comes to it, it's very hard to do that, right? But at a, an independent school or liberal arts college, it's easier to do. You should be able to track all those four things. But if we go around the country and ask the question, who has this data? Most people don't have it. They have the giving. A lot of people are starting to have the events and volunteering is getting better. But the communications one is the biggest challenge still. Um, but I would argue that we're, we're about halfway there to getting all institutions on board with, with the basics of being able to track those four items at a crawl stage, right? You know, walking, running, and flying. Flying to me is predictive modeling and how we can look at data that can tell us what might happen if we were to push this button over here on engagement program, we'll get this result later on. But you can't get any of that fly, that predictive modeling, until you do the basic stuff at the crawl stage, which is get the data into the system, right? And for me, the next stage up is to look at correlations of behavior. What is the impact of um, the people who attend events on giving or on volunteerism on giving or other outcomes? I think are really important to look at is recruiting students to a campus, right? The new student recruitment, mentoring current students, hiring graduates. Um, these are all outcomes that are important, equally important um, to raising money. But at the end of the day, you know, our institutional leaders, our boards, and the people that make decisions about resource allocation, who's going to get budget, they often look at ROI, right? What's the return on that investment? I call it ROE. What's the return on your engagement? And if we can show that the alumni engagement programming that we're doing is having an impact on some of these direct institution-wide revenue concerns that are, we're facing, which is enrollment, retention, um, replacement for our graduates and, and jobs, and, uh, and fundraising are all things I think we need to be thinking about and measuring and, and showing a correlation to. But I, I go back to the point I made at the very beginning of this part of the statement here, which is you can't get to that correlation or the predictive modeling or even causation stuff until you have the ability to have the, the, the database, the data, the data identified and the infrastructure and business processes in place to capture that data into a database somewhere. And until we get there, the other stuff's not going to happen. So I advocate strongly for a very basic approach to start. So if someone's listening to this podcast and hasn't begun, don't try to create a weighted scoring model that's going to be the perfect solution. Just try to get the data into your system and then build on it from there. It takes, you know, multiple years, I think. It's a three to five year journey to get your, your engagement metrics at a place where um, you can actually see some value coming out of it. The first few years of it, it's basically blocking and tackling, but I think we need to do it. We need to do better as an industry. I came out of athletics, as you know, we talked about earlier, and we had a scoreboard, you know, we knew, we knew to the hundredth of a second how someone was doing in the, in, in a swimming race, but 
um, we get to alumni relations and we don't have that yet. I think we're getting there. We're getting closer. Every, every year goes by, we're getting more and more closer to that point of a scoreboard scorecard. Um, but I think we still have work to do. And, and I advocate strongly for it, not being a comparative thing. How does Penn state compare to Ohio state in alumni engagement? I wouldn't worry about that. I would worry about how Penn state did in FY 20 versus FY 21 and FY 22. Look at yourself over time, not yourself against peers. It's not a competitive thing. It can be, and it might be at some point, but right now, I think we should be using these data models to help us to make decisions strategically about how we run our program. So uh, maybe more than you wanted, but that's how I think about uh, metric stuff right now, Paul. I used to coach little league baseball when my son was, when my son was doing that. And our head coach used to always say, you can't go on a five game winning streak until you win the first game. Uh, and, right. And really winning the first game here is counting. So yeah. many people are critical of that. And that's a, a step that they miss uh, and, and a step that they've, it's almost a, in some cases, a failure to launch type scenario, just start counting and collecting the data. Jay Dillon made this point on a previous podcast, just start counting and collecting because yep. you never know how you're going to be able to use that data in the future. But if you don't have it, you can never use it. Right. And, and one of the, uh, Gary Olson led the task force back in the first iteration from the case standpoint. And one of the mantras he said at the very beginning was, let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good here. We, we could be good. We're going to be a lot better than we were going into this whole thing. So perfection isn't the, out, isn't the goal initially here. We want to get good. If we can get good at getting data and counting into a system, we can build on that. And I think, all of us, anybody in the industry should be thinking about just getting data into systems right now and business processes to do that. Um, that's where we need to be focused right now. That sounds like I could hear Gary saying that. That is yeah. uh, <laughs> the Augustinian in him that comes out. Uh, exactly. Gary, former colleague at Villanova and then the University of Scranton. Yeah, I could, I could definitely hear him say it. And, I, and I've had, I have heard him say that. I also like the point that you make too. All too often, we get caught up in the competition with other institutions and trying to measure our program against theirs. But at the end of the day, this is not a competitive business, right? It's you versus yesterday, what you were able to do yesterday, and how have you improved since then? And so I think that's also uh, an important takeaway from how we look at metrics. You know, the strategic plan that you and I put together for Penn State, we took a little bit of a different tact on the categories that Case is using, although we use four categories, but we call ours the RIPS model. And so RIPS stands for the R is for revenue, the I is for improvement, the P is for participation, and the S is for satisfaction. Uh, and we are right now counting all of the things that we can be counting in each of those categories to drive us towards the outcomes that we are try trying to achieve there, whether it's growth and membership, whether it's satisfaction in our career services that we're delivering, readership satisfaction in our magazine. Uh, but that was all part of our, I, I, I can still see it uh, there back in my office in the strategic plan. It's a, create a, a metric dashboard to measure what's most important for the Penn State Alumni Association. Yeah. 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 I, I actually love that model. I think you're in the somewhere between jogging and running in the crawl, walk, run, fly evolution at Penn State, frankly. I mean, JT Forbes in Indiana has a similar model to what you just described, where they look at net promoter score to measure their satisfaction coming out of events. They look at revenue, they look at uh, impact and participation, um, but they also look at satisfaction with uh, using net promoter as their way. And I think that's a more highly evolved model. And when 
when a school who's not doing anything looks at that model and says, I want to get there, guess what the first thing they should start with, right? We already talked about it. It's counting, getting the data in the system. So don't try to get to where Penn State is right now if you're not doing anything. Um, my, my advice would be to get the systems and the processes in place to get the counting done and then build towards a more sophisticated, evolved model that Paul just described. I love, Paul, I love what you're doing there. It's great work. Chris, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about volunteer management. I know one of the marshalisms, uh, I guess when you write your memoir, it has to be, the title of the book has to be The Marshall Plan, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but one of the chapters in The Marshall Plan would be around volunteer management. And uh, the, the adage that resonates with me that I've heard you say, if not once, a hundred times, it's you get the board you deserve. Talk a little bit about what you mean by that when you say you get the board you deserve in terms of managing alumni councils or alumni boards. Yeah, I, I, I stole that from somebody, so I can't quote that in my, in my I, I came from somebody, a Harvard uh, le lecturer on board volunteer management, so I stole that one. But the, the other one that start before I get to that, let me just give you the premise, the preface that is another adage I use often, which is um, about the, the role a board should play. Uh, this is the role between, you know, describing the role between governance and management. And, is that, and, and the saying is this, and you've heard me say this one too, Paul, which is a good board should have their noses in, but their fingers out. And exactly. in a corporate board strategy, that doesn't work. In a governance board strategy, it does. But in an advisory board strategy, you have a governance board, Paul, right? But most alumni leaders have advisory boards. And this is even more important in an advisory capacity. And when you have a a board with their noses in and their fingers out, it means, Paul, you're running the day-to-day -day operation and managing. They're keeping their noses in and governing. That's the difference between the two. And when, when you let that board cross that line and they get their hands all up in the, the management of the operation, you, you, get, you get tension, right? You see these issues come up with, with boards and alumni leaders all the time. I, part of my, my living the last seven years has been based on helping alumni leaders untangle these relationships that have or boards have leaned in too far and their hands are all up and, right. um, you know, covering these uh, tactical issues that they shouldn't be discussing at all. So, so it goes back to the first, where you just said, which is, if you let that happen, if you get it to that point where you let the board cross that line and they get their hands up and everything, um, as a leader over many years, if you see that happening to your organization, you let, you get the board you deserve. You get a board that's going to be up in the details of your, of managing your business. But if you manage them the right way and you keep them clear about that line, what is their role? What are their expectations of the board? What, what, what do they do? What do they not do? And, and, and make that very clear from the moment they join the board to, to the orientation that happened every year and the ongoing operations of, of running an or, a volunteer organization like that. And you have this really high functioning strategic board that is highly engaged that are having a really good time and, and, and the meetings come up once a quarter or three times a year and you look forward to those meetings and, and they're really energizing to the staff and it's a really good situation guess what you get the board you deserve because you've worked hard to get to that point right you either way either side of that coin it's a really good high functioning group and you get because you've worked it get worked to get them there and you deserve that and or the other side of that you let it slide and you deserve it, right? The only place I would say you don't deserve it is when you inherit a new program. You're the new alumni leader and you come up come up to an organization and you're in your first year and all of a sudden you find yourself entangled with a board who have been operating a certain way. Untangling that is, is part of your role as a new leader. You don't deserve that. But um, 
but it, it, over time, if you let it keep that that way, you will deserve it in the, in the, in the long run. So it, it's a matter of of the posture of the board and how far you let them lean in when you manage an organization. I think it's a really critical one. It's 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 a tougher one to balance, frankly, in your shoes in a governing model. I think it's even easier in an advisory model because the lines are much clearer in that, in that model, which is the majority of alumni programs out there. Um, so that's where that's where that saying came from, and I use it a lot to help both boards and um, and staff understand the role that they play uh, in, in managing that part of the organization. It requires us as executive leaders, as as CEOs of our organization, to be able to answer, I think, two critical questions. The the one is what do we want and need from our governing board? And the second one, and it's not really a question, but it's more of a practice, is how do we set clear expectations for mm. what the volunteer role is and what the what the staff role is, not so that we can keep one away from the other, but that we can keep one as efficient as the other as the other is, right? It's about efficiency, yep. it's about maximizing everybody in in the role that they play on the team yeah i I couldn't agree more um that part of it uh, setting very clear expectations holding people accountable and the best one paul and you've seen this happen in your organizations i know is when volunteers hold each other accountable when somebody as a volunteer in a meeting crosses that line and a volunteer corrects that behavior you know your organization culturally at the right place because you have you have peer to peer you know course correcting when it goes wrong, not you having to intervene when it goes wrong. Um, so, so setting those expectations clearly, holding people to it, and having volunteers hold their colleagues to it as well, is all part of the art of this. It, it's it's easy to say what we just said, Paul, but it's it's an art form to execute. Chris, here on the alumni trending podcast, I'm going to put you in a position that I think that you're going to be absolutely comfortable in based on your history uh, in the profession is that you've always been out there on the edge. So on the Alumni Trending Podcast, we give our guests the final word on the profession. And so where do you, what do you see trending right now? Where do you see the profession of alumni relations in the context of advancement going? We talked about one already. I think we're going to see more and more emphasis around metrics that's been around for many years now. And I think we're going to see that continue to get focused. Um, this isn't a new one either, but I do think it's 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 trending more uh, and it's become more acute in these in these times of COVID when resources are, are constrained, which is the integration of alumni relations into an overall advancement structure. I think we're going to see more of that. The, the separate, independent, completely uh, legally separate and financially separate from the institution alumni program is, is, is no longer a model you see many of. There's very few out there like it. Even Penn State's is a hybrid model where you have independence, but you have institutional support in the equation as well. But I do think the the role that alumni relations plays in an advancement effort and what impact it has on advancement related activities, including giving, but other things as well, is going to be something we're going to see continue more and more. And the impact that we have on giving, frankly, is going to be something that boards, uh, institutional leaders are going to look toward, look at and say, why am I investing in alumni program if it's not producing any tangible results? We better be able to answer that question as an industry. You're better at doing that. We're getting better. I think we have more work to go. Of course, the recent COVID um, times and, 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 and the last four months has shown where the digital engagement world is going to go. As you know, Paul, your program has pivoted and many others have done the same, have stepped up to uh, provide a, 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 um, a virtual version of engagement that, that 
that existed, frankly, in other places, but not at the level we're at today. We've seen this go 100% in many cases and um, where we're, a lot of places are just all digital now. In fact, most places are all digital, but they're doing as much or more programming digitally than they would if it was in person. And what we're seeing as an industry, Paul, is in- interesting to me, across the board, we're seeing an increase in breadth of engagement through digital means. Um, I was talking to Julie Sign at UCLA about an event they held not long ago where they would have probably, if they'd done it in person, they would have had a couple hundred people, but they did it virtually with a really you know, rock star faculty speaker on mindfulness. And they had 550 people join the uh, webinar. Amazing. It's lowering barriers to participation by letting people not have to drive and park in downtown L- or you know, West, Westwood, L.A. Uh, to attend an event right now. Now they can do it from their living room and, and be comfortable about it and get the same level of, uh, uh, of uh, impact from that. Now, I think what, what it's doing for us as an industry is impacting the breadth of engagement. We're seeing new, young, diverse and um, first time engagement acts coming from these virtual webinars. But I worry a little bit about what, what, what does that mean in terms of the depth of engagement, that personal interaction that you might have in an event, like we talked about earlier in your own comments, that, that, that one-on-one stuff, face-to-face stuff is still going to be critical. I think depth is going to be something I worry a little bit about, but uh, breath were there. And then the last thing on this, you know, I, um, in terms of trends and where the industry is going, the last thing, Paul, I'll mention and I want to give um, kudos to you, is that I'm seeing industry leaders uh, emerging out of this, these times where people are stepping up and doing some really cool things, not just to help Penn State in your case or, or, or in Jay Dillon's case at Cal, but we have you, we have Jay, we have Andy at Brown and many others who are stepping up for the sake of the industry and doing really good things to help other people who are learning and trying to get through these things do, um, you know, learn how to do it, frankly. Um, what Jay Dillon has done with his webinar series, and there's one coming up next week, it's phenomenal. What you're doing with this is I would put in the same list, Andy at Brown with his alumni futures work he's been doing for many years now. But you even got, you know, the leadership of CAAE, um, JT Forbes, Barbara Dick, Hoop Swampler, Laura Wayland, the, the, that the whole crew has done amazing stuff to bring the industry forward. And I would throw the same out to the folks at Pequod with Patrick Auerbach at USC and Kathy Kale at Santa Clara, we, we're seeing some people step up that we haven't before. And I think the industry needs that. So anybody listening who can play a role to help shape where we're going as an industry or participate and, 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 and or lead, um, I think we need more of that. We need, we need thought leadership. We need good, strong people to help, you know, make us all better. And uh, I put Paul to what you've done here with this podcast, I think is a, is a great example and kudos to you for doing it. And thank you. That's really kind of you to say that, and I'm grateful for your support. Chris, if people are interested in getting in touch with you or finding out more about your work, how can they do that? Thanks, Paul. appreciate uh, that chance to plug. Um, the website's the best place. I'm at uh, www.cmac.me, cmac.me, and always by email, chris.marshall at cmac.me. I'm happy to talk to anybody anytime about these issues. Uh, Paul, thank you for having me, and I really feel honored to be a guest on your show. Chris, thank you so much for being on Alumni Trending. I'm John Fudo, Vice Chancellor for University Advancement at UMass Lowell, and I'm staying on trend by listening to the Alumni Trending podcast. There you go, Trendsetters, another episode of Alumni Trending. If you are enjoying 
the Alumni Trending Podcast. Make sure you go out to iTunes or your podcast app of choice and give us a rating and drop us a review. We'd also love to hear from you. Drop me an email at paul.clifford at alumnitrending.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and keep trending.